I'm coming to the end of a, another day of practice together. Um, appreciating the efforts that everyone has uh, put in to help um, all of us contributing to the holding of the retreat, which is supportive for all of us uh, and enabling this opportunity to deepen our, our practice, uh, this inquiry into uh, the nature of reality, uh, into our experience of the heart, the mind, the body being more real with how it is in the moments of the day as the day unfolds, uh, practicing cultivating patience, kindness, persistence, starting again, uh, listening to each other in our small groups, listening to ourselves. <laughs> All of this is, uh, is, has been work. It's, uh, it's, uh, it has, uh, it's, quite, it's demanding in a certain way, demanding of our capacity to put ourselves forward and to do the work. So appreciate that, appreciate that we've all been doing this, appreciate those behind the scenes that have been preparing the meals and bringing out the food. It's wonderful sustenance that we've had, delicious meals. <laughs> Very hard practice not to eat too much. <laughs> Every lunchtime, it's wonderful. We appreciate the, the work that goes into preparing those meals and then those that, that uh, work to sustain this center. It's quite a a complex center to maintain a large community that supports the center. So may all of those that are involved in supporting um, benefactors and so on of IMS, may they be well, may they also benefit from our practice. Uh, we appreciate the support. Today at question times are questions piled up. We didn't manage to get to them all, and uh, some of them we won't get to, and some of the questions don't necessarily have answers, uh, or even if they have answers, they're not going to really feel they've really answered our question, because that's the nature of questions. There's always a question. So it's useful to consider when we approach these teachings and practices what what uh, really they can answer for us, what they can, what they are directed towards, and what is left in the realm of imponderables, and what is left in the realm for us to sort out ourselves. Because certainly the Dharma and the practice of Dharma is not necessarily going to answer everything. There's going to be a lot of gray areas and a lot of things that we're going to have to figure out. You know, how do we live, and what do we do, and you know, and. Uh, all the different daily decisions that we make. So it's, it's useful and helpful to, to really um, get a sense of um, what the, where the Buddha was pointing, the heart of where he was pointing in his teaching, what he really did want to resolve and what he really did want to highlight. Um, and for us to get a, a, a real handle on that, to really kind of get a sense of the territory of why, why are we doing this, and what is the heart of it, and, and what is it about? Uh, you know, what, is, where, where, what can it serve us in? 
And uh, the um, Buddha, as I mentioned when we began the retreat, at one point he was with his disciples, who no doubt also had many questions, and maybe why he, that is why he made this statement. Uh, he was in a, in a forest and he, he said that actually the knowledge of an awakened one is analogous to the many leaves on the trees, thousands and thousands of leaves on, on the trees of the forest. It's very large, very broad. But what the concern of the Buddha was, what he was most concerned in communicating, and he picked up a, hand, a handful of leaves, is analogous to just this handful, just this much. And then he said, this, this is the knowledge particular to a Buddha, and this is the knowledge of the four noble truths, the four ennobling truths. The experience of uh, suffering, dukkha, and the ending of suffering, dukkha. And this uh, is what the Buddha set out at the heart of his teaching to convey. It's a teaching that's for humans, it's a teaching for all of us that we can apprehend and work with because, uh, because we experience suffering. <laughs> we experience struggle, we experience stress. Uh, so that this is uh, something that we can relate to and it's the starting point of his teaching. When the other night Kitty Sorrow was laying out the journey of the Buddha-to-be, Siddhartha Gautama, the young man that was on his search, on his quest. Um, he left off the story on the night of his awakening, and we uh, saw the Buddha uh, being um, realized, awakening to, to certain knowledges or certain understandings. The, the knowledge, what's called the, the knowledge of all the, his previous incarnations, or all the previous stories, all the places he appeared. Uh, and whether we believe in reincarnation or not, we only have to be here in, the, in this retreat to know how many stories we've already lived through, um, and how many of them we can identify in our past. Um, and he could see all the stories, all the lives of other beings, how they arose according to cause and effect, and um, their situation, and then the knowledge of the interconnectedness of all things. It's called dependent arising. This arises because of that. Um, the way the sense of self is shaped and arises the sense of separate self, how that becomes emergent, born, created, dissolved, dying. And then the liberating knowledge of the apprehension, the insight and what's, uh, into what is called the amata dhamma, or the deathlessness, or that which doesn't die, that which is not subject to decay, that which is not subject to death, what he called nibbana, or nirvana the taste of peace. And so this was uh, the insights of the Buddha on the night of awakening. And at first it was so subtle, this insight into the, into the Amata Dharma, into the Dharma, the deathless Dharma, that 
he felt very reluctant. Well, at first, actually, the insight was very liberating, and, the, and he experienced uh, the bliss, uh, taste of peace, the bliss, the freedom. And it's said that for many weeks, he just hung out under the Bodhi tree, enjoying the bliss of liberation, the peace, the resolve, the, 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 the uh, depth of understanding the unshakability of, of the heart. No more seeking, no more striving. It said that even for one whole week he stood with eyes, unmoving eyes, gazing with devotion at the Bodhi tree, which had protected him through his struggle and into his night of enlightenment, awakening. I mean, that's pretty blissed out. It's a a metaphor that he literally stood there, but this lovely uh, gratitude to the tree. And it's said that, um, you know, before his awakening, when Mara, the tempter, or that which deludes, the doubting voices that came up, all the longings and 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 the challenge and the you know, who are you and what are you doing here and you should be fulfilling your duty and all of these things that came up to distract him. And he just sat under the Bodhi tree and just without reacting, just saying, I know you, Mara, I know those voices. Uh, And I said that in the awakening that actually there wasn't, you know, who could witness to his awakening? Who could affirm his awakening. And then there was this moment when Mother Earth herself witnessed to his awakening, witnessed all the many lives that he had lived through until this moment of freedom. And there's a beautiful moment where he touches the earth. So you see the Buddha statues like this one here, where the Buddha's just touching the earth, acknowledging the acknowledgement from Mother Earth herself the affirmation, uh, the, you know, the deepest connection of the body of being with this planet, with the, earth, with the earth herself, this blessing from the earth, and then the tree, the tree that protected him, this great sense of gratitude and connection. And you see that all through the life of the Buddha is this deep connection with the earth and with the trees and with the forests as he wandered through, uh, through the lands. And... Um, at first, actually, he was very reluctant to teach. He, he wasn't really sure whether anyone could actually even understand. Um, and so it's said that uh, in this reluctance, that, uh, that he almost didn't. He almost felt that no one could understand this insight, this, uh, this subtle realization and I guess he felt like just going off to the Himalayas or something and, and sitting out the eon <laughs> in bliss, <laughs> in simplicity. Because, I mean, no one in their right minds would want to teach, really. It's, it's, actually, <laughs> it's actually very hard to communicate. It's, uh, it's, you know, these things are hard, are challenging, and however much to challenge to communicate what his insight was beyond words, actually. It's not captured in language, so to try and use language to capture and communicate the insight that transcends language, it's a paradox, it's a conundrum. 
So rather than just not try. But it's said that at that moment, the great God, so the gods have been up there looking at this struggle of this human being and cheering, cheering him on, knowing that, you know, this is the time he's going to break through and, you know, turn the wheel of the Dharma for the welfare of the many folks. So when they saw up in the heavenly realms, when they saw that the Buddha was about to give up, apparently the, the god of Brahma Sahampati from the world of, of subtle creation, the Brahma god, came down before the Buddha and manifested, great radiant angel, great radiant being, manifested and said, please, out of compassion for those with a little dust in their eyes, please go forth and turn the wheel of the Dhamma. The Brahma is, is, represents the world of, of, of bringing the formless, the subtle Dharma into the world of form to find words, to find expression, this encouragement and out of compassion. And that there are those beings like ourselves who will be able to understand. Even if we don't get the whole picture, we can get a taste, a sense. So. So the Buddha uh, uh, left eventually his seat of enlightenment and scanning with his psychic knowledge all the people he had practiced with, all the beings he'd known to think about who could he communicate his understanding to. And his teachers had died. And then he remembered, if you, if you recall, when Kittisara was telling the story about the, his five fellow ascetics, yogis, that he practiced with that had abandoned him because he'd gone soft because he accepted the, the milk rice from the young maiden. And that was definitely a slipping and slippery and sliding slope that he'd gone down. Uh, you know, so they'd gone off, huffed off to carry on their severe ascetic practices, he realized that those very companions would be the ones that could perhaps understand his insight. And so it's said that he left uh, Varanasi, Banaras, the Enlightenment seat, and walked to, um, no, he, he left Budgaya, sorry, he left Budgaya, which you can still visit, of course, and walked to Varanasi, Varanaris. Uh, to meet in Saranath, his uh, companions. And when they saw him coming, I mean, it's quite a long walk. Uh, it takes an overnight train journey to go there now, if you were going to do that, slow Indian train. But as he was walking, he had a chance to, to formulate how to present his teaching because the first person that saw him and came across him on his after his awakening, saw how radiant he was, how peaceful had come up and said, you know, what are you about? And the Buddha responded, said, I'm the all-enlightened and all-awakened one. I'm the world transcender. And the person went, well, nice for you. (laughs) And it said in the sutta, he shook his head and walked off. You know, so he couldn't, the Buddha was was giving his first teaching. It was his first teaching of, of, of the lion's roar of enlightenment. It wasn't an ego statement, it's the statement of truth. When we understand our true nature, it's it's the statement of what we are. But he couldn't grasp it. So so I guess by the time he got to Benares, he figured out another strategy. (laughs) (laughs) 
So when his first, when his five friends saw him arriving, they said, "Oh, there's Gotama, the, 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 you know, he's he's the one that's given up the path. He's the slider. He's the he's, you know, let's not get up and pay respects to him. You know, let's ignore him." But apparently, he was his presence was such that they couldn't. You know, said, "No, there's, you know," and and in spite of themselves, they found in themselves honoring him, giving him a seat. And he sat and then gave this what's called the Dhamma Chakra Sutta, the, the, the teaching on the turning of the wheel of the Dhamma, the first turning of the wheel of the Dhamma, the idea of the, the, uh, the Dhamma is always present, the Amata Dhamma, the deathless Dhamma. It doesn't belong to any religion, doesn't belong to anyone, any teacher. It's, uh, it's, it's always ever here and now to be realized, to be known directly. And it's said that the Buddha's turning of the wheel was a way of, this, through this teaching, was a way of pointing us as human beings to apprehend this deathless Dhamma, to know the deathless directly as a realization for ourselves here and now. So even here and now, that Dhamma wheel still turns, is still in motion. And every so often in, in, in the unfolding of the Dharma, it gets kind of pushed along. We're pushing it along a little bit tonight. <laughs> so the Four Noble Truths that the Buddha laid out, four aspects that we can contemplate in our human incarnation. It's not beyond us to really apprehend these four truths. They're accessible, they're doable, they're pra- we can practice with them. The first truth that the Buddha laid out was that there is this experience of what he called dukkha. And dukkha needs, he gave with each of the statements of the four truths, he gave a practice, a way of practicing with each truth. So there is this experience of dukkha and the practice is that dukkha needs to be understood or turned to or contemplated. The second noble truth is there is this experience, there is the origin of dukkha. There is that which originates and gives rise to stress and suffering. And that needs to be the practice of that is in the second noble truth is that that needs to be let go of. That which originates stress, suffering needs to be seen and to be relinquished. Third noble truth, there is the cessation or the ending, the complete and utter ending of dukkha. And that needs to be realized, tasted, known by each person individually. No one else can do it for us. It's something we need to do for ourselves. And then the fourth noble truth is that there is a path, a way of practice that uh, brings about the ending of dukkha. And that needs to be the practices of the path activity that needs to be cultivated or developed, which is what we're doing on the retreat. We're cultivating little by little the power of path activity, which sets the ground, sets the template for this uh, more subtle insight, this work of uh, understanding the origin, the arising of stress and the cessation of it, how to bring about the cessation the freedom, how to bring about the free, to recognize the inherent freedom of heart. And it's, you know, it's, um,
it's something we can practice with. So <clears throat> in this, this first noble truth, the, the very term dukkha, it's not, uh, it's not meaning that the, that, the, that the end of dukkha is the end of pain or the end of challenge or the end of difficulty. It's not like waving a magic wand and we will no longer have painful knees or we won't age or we won't experience um, the, the, the loss of loved ones or we won't experience death or we won't experience um, things that irritate and impinge on the senses. It's not, it's not a unrealistic um, um, goal to think, you know, to think, well, actually, the ending of dukkha means that we won't ever feel any pain anymore or anything that's difficult. That's not what the Buddha was pointing to when he talked about the, un, the, the release of suffering. He talked about dukkha as being uh, defined it as that which is hard to bear, that which is unsatisfactory, that which is, has a sense of struggle in it, that which has stress, uh, literally means that which is apart from the whole, do meaning apart from the akash, the space, the free. We find ourselves as feeling apart from perfection or wholeness, freedom, uh, had this uh, sense of uh, that which is hard to bear or difficult to be with. And in the practice, usually when we feel the experience of struggle, unsatisfactoriness, suffering, it's very personal to us. It feels like there's something wrong with me. We, take, we interpret it very personally. You know, I feel, I mean, today I felt suffering. A lot of people, a lot of us, when we feel upset or angry or struggling, we take it very, very, very personally. We create a sense of self around it, me failing somehow, or me wrong somehow, or me bad. But this statement that the Buddha made was a very, in a way, dispassionate way of framing the experience of human uh, struggle. He said, there is, not you are suffering, or the world is bad because, it, because, it's, because they're suffering. There's something wrong with the world. No, no, it wasn't, wasn't saying that the, world, the world's bad and it's suffering and it's all pain. You know, when, we, when we apprehend correctly, then the world is what it is. You know, it, it is what it is. But this, this quality of, of unsatisfactoriness, struggle, which is a lot of what we've been doing here on the retreat, the recommendation or the, the medicine, the practice is to, to turn to it contemplate, to meet, to feel with, to know the experience of dukkha directly, not to be overwhelmed, not to be shaped by, not to be uh, um, swept away, not to deny, not to project it on ourselves, not to project it out. I'm, I'm suffering because there's noise in the hall or because someone else is doing it to me. Um, it's not to say that others can't cause us enormous pain, <laughs> betrayals and so on, part of human life. But it's, it's this, what, what is being pointed to is how the, the dukkha that the Buddha is pointing to is not the, the pains and aches and difficulties inherent in incarnation, 
but it is this extra thing that operates through the activity of what he called avijo, ignorance, the ignorance of the mind through not understanding reality, through not understanding how things actually are in reality, we generate, we are generating suffering. The ignorance of the mind, the lack of knowledge, the lack of understanding, the lack of insight, in and of itself generates suffering, generates struggle. When we want things to be permanent and they're not, when we want the body to be, it's, you know, it's not the pain, the pain is pain, but when we don't want it there to be as it is, we want it to be, you know, to feel bliss when we feel heavy and depressed. The feeling heavy and depressed is one thing, but the desire for it to not to be there is the extra suffering and struggle that is generated from the, from the, uh, from the lack of ability to really meet the reality of the moment as it is. So this experience of the dukkha that the Buddha is pointing to is something that we're generating or ignorance or unconsciousness is being, is generating all the time. We, we generate it um, through when we project it onto, onto ourselves, onto the world around us, through our, our difficulty in really apprehending the reality of life as it is. We want it to be more than it is. We want, you know, it's like we want to, we want, as you know, sometimes said, the, the conditions of life to give us more than they can give us. We want the body to give us more pleasure. We want the weather to give us more sunshine. <laughs> it's nice. It's not to say we can't appreciate when the sun comes out, finally, here after a long winter. Uh, we want the, someone else to give us what they haven't given us, a smile, acknowledgement. Uh, we, we, you know, we want the meditation to give us more than it's giving us. We want the retreat to give us more. I would like this Dharma talk to be more lucid and fluid than I feel it, struggling with the world. You know, so this way that we, that, that we project uh, onto the moments of what is. Actually, what is has its own perfection, it's unfolding, and then we project this thing onto it. That we want something more than is here, and we don't want what is here. You know, we don't, we don't want to experience as it is. And it's that, the second noble truth, it is the, it is the constant uh, demand almost uh, projection onto the moments of our experience through this wanting and not wanting of what is that generates this struggle, generates this uh, stress. And so we can practice there. Is the pain, is the problem, or where is the problem? Where is the pain? What's, you know, what's really happening here? Is it, you know, if there's dukkha now, here and now, the dis-ease here and now, you know, where, where is, it, is it arising because, oh no, I've got to sit through another Dhamma talk. <laughs> is, you know, is it, would it be better if we sat in silence, would that alleviate the dukkha? Would it, you know, we go, to, go up to our room and lay down? Yes, it, it would, but then perhaps the mind would find another problem. 
so you know it's it's this illusion or delusion this is the the quality of ignorance it's the illusion in the moment that it would be better if it was slightly different somehow or if i was somewhere else or if the conditions were a bit different and it's not to say that that there isn't a lot of merit and importance in bringing the best situation about that we can in the world but this is a subtler level we're not talking about not being able to respond and change and do whatever we can to make things as well as we can. That's, that has a lot of merit. It's important that we do that if we can. But this is looking at the sort of fever underneath that that doesn't allow us any deeper peace because we're always moving the rocks around in our life to... to, to I'm saying that because I was reminded earlier in one of the groups about, we were talking about Ajahn Chah's thing, is the sound bothering you or are you going out to bother the sound? That analogy, and I was, I was remembering that on one retreat, one of our friends, uh, one of the um, monks from England was telling us about he was on a retreat and uh, it was a retreat center that had a stream with these rocks in it. And the way the stream was flowing, all this guy, all this meditator could hear in the, in the sound of the, of the tinkling of the stream was the, was the stars and stripes. And it was driving him nutty. So one break time, he, he was out there moving the rocks around <laughs> in, the, in the river, in the stream to try and get a different tune, you know. I mean, it's the kind of madness you get into when you're a, when you're a meditator, you know, you, and then you suddenly realize this is nuts, you know, but we're, we're, we're doing that all the time. We're constantly kind of moving the rocks around to, to get the better tune, and, and that's good, you know, it's fine. It's great to have a nice tune, but it doesn't resolve the underlying issue of, of you know, this fever of constantly, you know, moving the the conditions of the world to get it right for me you know so and and that's the dukkha the buddha's pointing to it's not that we won't feel pain or challenge or difficulty but it's the extra fever you know the uh, ajahn chah would, would, would call it being having a, a dog with mange you know we, the dog runs all over the place scratching trying to alleviate the mange but doesn't realize it's on the body you know so we he, he would always think of I think he must have thought of his Western disciples because <laughs> we were so active and running around and doing all this stuff that we do, you know. And we can see the absurdity of how, you know, we have like a billion dollar industry to alleviate this, you know, to distract us, to keep us occupied, to move from this to that, to that, to this, to that, to change the channels, to keep us busy and keep us moving in a way that uh, to try and get things better and more perfect and yeah and, and yet underlying all that perhaps we haven't really come to terms with the limitation of the of the worlds of form you know it appears to us as a limitation we create you know we want to yeah try and make the world of form what it can't be we try and find perfection. So, the, so in the first noble truth, as we contemplate, it's not to make ourselves depressed. Oh, it's all suffering. It's all dark. Buddhism's just about suffering. <laughs> it's actually, it's not about that. But it's actually being realistic to contemplate, to recognize. Because when we actually recognize 
a moment of dis-ease, a moment of stress, usually underneath that, we're clinging somehow. We want it to be a bit different. You know, and, that, and it's not to say it shouldn't be different, but when that's unconscious, then we experience suffering and then we try and alleviate it and we never really get to the root of where it's coming from. You know, so in this second noble truth, the practice that the Buddha recommends is that when we notice this, the, the clinging, the wanting, just as a practice, it's not to say we should never want ever again, or that desire is somehow bad or evil. It's not saying that, but just as a practice to rather than try and change the whole world to make it right for us, what happens when we just just let things be as they are? Let the body be as it is. Let a difficult relationship be as it is. Let 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 the feeling be as it is. Let the evening be as it is in its perhaps lack of total perfection. <laughs> and, you know, and then releasing out of the underlying, it should be slightly different. Want, want something more, sort of milking the moment almost, um, or not wanting, you know, not wanting what's here. So in this this contemplation of the the aversion, the desire of the mind, constantly agitating in a way that creates the stress, the contemplation of letting be, letting go, relinquishing, leads us into the apprehension of this third noble truth, which is comes about through the, the, the cessation of the mind that's grasping, the cessation of what's called identification, even with, with the moving forms of sound, feeling, sight, perception, storylines, body sensation, all of that is there, all of it is flowing. But there's no longer through the, the push and the pull and the wanting it a different way, wanting me to be a different way, wanting, not wanting me to be quite like this, all of that identification, all the shaping around it, all the stress to try and get it around, the the releasing out of that, just letting it be, moments of just letting it be as it is, without that agenda, and realizing the the sense of, of, of the I trying to make it so, feeling that, seeing that, shaped by thoughts, feeling, trying to make the meditation a different way, trying so hard, all of that, just releasing out and just getting a sense of actually as that, as that release starts to happen, as that allowing things to be as they are happens, then there is beginning to apprehend this insight into the underlying peace or the underlying space or the underlying perfection or the underlying nibbana, that which is, that which is.
this, this subtle way of in the there's a an interesting exchange that happened between two disciples of the Buddha. One one was called Anuruddha, and the other disciple who was considered foremost in wisdom called Sariputta. Anuruddha was known for his great uh, psychic powers, could see into all the realms of existence, uh, was very, very proficient practitioner, very able, uh, lots of his own disciples. And uh, one day he went to, Anuruddha went to Sariputra and said, you know, Sariputra, I am someone that's most proficient Enable being able to see all the, into all the realms of existence. I'm someone that's most proficient in calm. You know, I'm very stabilized, calm, focus. I'm one of the most proficient in mindfulness. You know, I've really developed. I'm putting words into Anuruddha's mouth now. <laughs> I really developed, you know, almost more than anyone. I don't know if he said that, but he, he might have felt it. Mindfulness. I'm really, I'm very mindful. And, uh, and yet, Sariputra, I still suffer. And uh, Sariputra said to him, well, your idea that, that you are the most proficient in these areas is tied up with conceit, with the sense of self doing it, the sense of you uh, doing it, and, and subtly with a sense of restlessness that, that you still have to get somewhere, still have to achieve something, still have to get it right. I'm, again, I'm elaborating a lot now, but still this feeling of uh, having to get it right, trying to make the conditions perfect. Perfect meditator, perfect posture, the perfect meditator. Have we, have you ever had a totally perfect meditation? Well, you might have done, but it's changed, no doubt. You know, it's it's this feeling that that there should be. It's almost this underlying unconscious assumption that there is something called perfection, <laughs> that somehow we'll get to if we do enough of the right things. Um, and then, and there's, and there's a lot of other people that have it. I know they do, but somehow I've been out the back door, and I wasn't quite sure how you you got there. And then we transport all of that into our meditation, and we have this idea: the perfect meditator. And you know, this so this subtle, even this subtle sense of me trying. And it's not to say we shouldn't. See, this is where it's quite it gets quite paradoxical paradoxical that we that there is an effort but when that's bound up with a sense of of me doing it failing getting there not getting there um, judging it's good it's bad should be better want it a little different all of that connects us with this sense of unsatisfactoriness you know there's still this sense of being bound and so in this third noble truth is the the encouragement like in uh, Sariputra, encouraged Naruda to turn, what he, what he encouraged, which is a meditation in the Third Noble Truth. He said, Naruda, turn your mind, turn your attention to the signless, to the deathless, to the amata, to the non-arising, to the peaceful. 
to the un well again I'm elaborating <laughs> it's called the anudasana vinyana the conscious consciousness the signless consciousness not consciousness connected with hearing consciousness tasting thinking uh, feeling consciousness but pure consciousness pure awareness pure presence pure knowing unadulterated, undiluted, apprehending, noticing, realizing that which is present. This third noble truth is called Niroda. First noble truth is called Dukkha. Dukkha, opposite of Sukha. Sukha is happiness. Dukkha, Dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, stress, suffering. Second noble truth, Tanha, thirsting, thirsting to become someone successful, better, to become something. And again, none of these are, are when, when we understand, we can transform that energy and direct it with wisdom, compassion. But when it's unconscious, we just get driven, becoming, becoming the next thing. It's connected with sensory experience, the desire, the sort of fever of the feveredness that can go along with uh, the sensory, scanning the sensory world for the right kind of experience. And then when we've had enough of that, enough of the being filled with tastes, sounds, t- sights, enough restaurants, enough contact, enough out there socializing, doing our stuff in the world, then the third kind of tanha or thirsting is what's called the thirsting for non-existence. I don't want to feel anything. I just want to hide under the duvet. I don't want to have any contact. Is that familiar anywhere? <laughs> It's a very profound, can be a very profound sense of just not wanting to be incarnated. It's too, it's difficult. And all of these, when we're shaped by those tanhas, those thirsts, those desires, those or not or not wanting to be in contact, you know, they they shape this feeling of, of they generate the unsatisfactoriness, the lack of peace. So the, the third, sec, first and second noble truth is just to, exactly what we're doing, to inquire, to keep noting the very mindfulness that we bring to the breath. We're bringing to notice is there dukkha. And we can actually, rather than rejecting it, impersonalizing it, blaming it, repressing it, we contemplate it. What is giving rise right now to that? Can I know that? Can I know the feeling of not wanting to be here? Can I know the feeling of moving out to try longing for some something to fill me? Can I know the feeling of never being enough and feeling I have to be a bit more successful somehow? Which, you know, we can perhaps never quite get to. A friend of ours in uh, 
a CEO of a, one of the top CEOs in South Africa, one of the top companies. Uh, we were at a dinner party with in Johannesburg. Uh, very, all these uh, very um, tra uh, gold traders, bankers, things like that. Actually, a little bit of an excruciating place to be if you're a <laughs> Dharma practitioner in some ways. <laughs> now, what's the price of gold? I don't know. But anyway, I was at one of these, um, you know, social cocktail party things and talking to these, brilliant man, brilliant, brilliant, um, brilliant mind, uh, highly perceptive, um, very powerful, very effective. And, uh, you know, I was just talking to him about the world he, he lived in, very, very incredible levels of stress gambling with millions of dollars on, you know, the weird world of gold trading. And um, I was asking him about, you know, the, he, was talking about, he was talking about the stress of it all, and I was asking him about, well, you know, when, when, when does it ever stop? When does it, you know, how do you ever, you know, feel it's enough? That in, and he said, you know, when, when, I'm, when I'm successful, that's when, when I'm successful. And it was like, well, you, that was a stunning moment for me. I was so stunned, I should have actually asked him, what is success? Because, you know, I, in terms of the world, I don't know how much more successful you get, actually, in, in terms of, you know, so even if, if one, you know, so this tanha, the, the, the thirsting, it's not to say there's an energy that's very important. We can, when it's conscious, conscious, we can, we can work with it consciously. We can direct it with wisdom. But when it's unconscious, and we just have the, the delusion in it that if we keep filling, we'll get there, then we are generating that dukkha. We never can feel ease. We can never actually enjoy the successes. They can never fulfill us. They can never satiate us. So this tanha, this dukkha, we're, we're apprehending, we're contemplating, and then this third noble truth, niroda. It's when the mind, the, you know, when moments when we just let go, let be. And we might, it might not be a profound insight into nirvana, but we can taste a little bit of that. You know, just like... Sometimes, as Kitty Sarah was talking about sickness, sometimes when one's sick or when one's life defeats you and you can't shift anything and you have to let go, you know, those moments you, you get that feeling sometimes. Uh, when I was, uh, I had a, an accident, uh, I fell off a horse <laughs> and had an accident in, uh, when I was in South Africa. And um, which meant I had to lay on my back for a month in the middle of you know all these things I was supposed to doing at the same time my computer crashed it was like losing my brain it's like the whole my whole world went down and I couldn't move for a month and it was an incredibly peaceful month <laughs> once I got over my upset about the accident and how it happened and uh, you know it was just I couldn't do anything. You know, and I had to let go, I had to accept limitation, which is what we resist so, so profoundly, isn't it? The limitation of form. So in this third noble truth, it's this, this 
niroda, it literally means without constriction, it's apprehending the pure heart, the heart of awareness that has no constriction. It's not arising and passing. It's not tainted by death. It's not tainted by suffering. It is complete. And in the tasting of that, there's peace, there's release, there's resolve, there's fulfillment, there's liberation. Your life's still moving, there's still response, there's still skills to develop, but there's the knowing of the home ground is the apprehension or rootedness in our true home. So it's not nirvana or nirvana or niroda, all of these words are connected with with the sense of peace, the release of grasping. It's not about something we attain to as an I getting there in, in, in time or in space. It's always here and now, it's in the moments of generally just let things be. And that attention that we've been holding to breath, to sensation, to feeling, turns and apprehends, turning the mind to the signless, to the deathless, apprehends this quality, this presence, being, listening, here and now, the heart of awareness. Finishing with a few words from a great Thai meditation master, Ajahn Mahabua. When dukkha is completely stopped, nothing remains. All that remains is an entirely pure awareness. It is not even a noble truth. It's the purity of the heart. If you want, you can call it Nibbana. All I ask is that you know this marvelous, extraordinary Dharma. Its excellence exists of its own accord without our having to confer titles. All that remains is an entirely pure awareness.
like to dedicate this talk tonight to my beloved husband and Dharma partner, Kibisaro, whose birthday it is today. <laughs> Without you, not possible. And to our our little dog, Jack, <laughs> who passed over last September. Yeah, he was with us for 50, 14 years, our ally in South Africa, our personal trainer, our therapist, and our, our Dharma master. Dharma comes in many different guises. So wherever Jack is in his little spirit, he's part of our trio, may he be well. And may you be well. May you realize Nibbana, may all of us realize Nibbana, the peace of our own heart. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.